1 Corinthians 4, 7. While you're turning there, I'll read it. It's just a one short verse that simply asks three questions. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I like that verse because it's one of those verses that makes its own outline. Three questions that rebuke the arrogance of human conceit and remind us of the debt we owe to God's sovereign grace. It's a passage that is a reproof and a correction really to everything that is man-centered in our theology. And it's a reminder that the truth of God's sovereignty ought to make us humble, not proud. That's, and some of you who maybe struggle with Calvinism would say, most of the Calvinists I know aren't that humble. And I have to admit, that's, I think that's a valid criticism. It shouldn't be, because the truth of God's sovereignty, if it, if it does anything to our personalities, it should make us humble. Because it reminds us of how little is in our control, how, how little we actually are sovereign over anything. We're not sovereign over anything. So let me remind you of the context of this passage. Paul is writing here to the Corinthian church. This is a young church filled with new believers, and most of them are Gentiles who have come to Christ out of a background of paganism, rank paganism. Uh, This church itself was set in a culture that was beset by extreme paganism. The largest building in the center of town in Corinth was a temple to the god Apollo, built with these enormous stone columns that still dominate the ruins of Corinth today. You can go there and see it. Corinth was also home to the temple of Aphrodite. Uh, There was a large temple complex built atop Acrocorinth, which was this high fortified hill just on the outskirts of the city, and employed at the temple of Aphrodite were more than a thousand temple prostitutes, both men and women, who worked as slaves, and their job was to service strangers who came to town to worship Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love. And visiting those temple courtesans was deemed a religious sacrament by the pagans of that time. In fact, Corinth was world-renowned for the savage lifestyle of the people who lived there and for the immoral behavior of guests who visited there The city was filled with brothels, and it was overrun with immorality, and it was shot through with the most gross and ungodly forms of paganism. In other words, I like to compare Corinth, or New Testament Corinth, to Las Vegas today. It is a city filled with immorality and vice, but one significant difference with what you're used to in Las Vegas, the attractions at Corinth were not gambling casinos, They were temples, and it gave that city's debauchery a kind of religious veneer that enabled people in that culture to regard their immorality as something sacred. Corinth had temples everywhere, really. There was world-famous temples there to Apollo and Hermes and Heracles and Athena and Poseidon. And in fact, one of the largest temples in the city was one dedicated to Asclepius, who was the god of healing, and people would bring these little terracotta replicas of body parts to the temple, signifying, you know, whatever part of their body needed healing. And if you visit the ruins of ancient Corinth, 
today, you can see the, the ruins of all of those temples, and archaeologists have even unearthed, unearthed thousands of those little clay body parts that were offered at the temple of Asclepius. But the main focus of activity in Corinth were those brothels, and there was row after row of them. You can still see them in the ruins of Corinth today, and in my mind, it's the most striking thing about Corinth. With all of the prostitution going on, sacred prostitution they deemed it, you wonder how any other kind of business could ever be transacted there. But in the midst of that immoral and superstitious culture was this little community of Christians. The Apostle Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth when the church was founded there, and the biblical record of Paul's ministry in Corinth takes up most of Acts 18. And Luke records that when Paul arrived in Corinth, he went first to the synagogue, is what he always did, and preached there to the the Jews. He would go there every Sabbath when they gathered, Acts 18, verse 4. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. But for the most part, the Jews in Corinth rejected the message. Acts 18, starting at verse 6, says this. I'll just read it to you. And when they opposed and reviled him, Paul shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, who was a worshiper of God, And his house was right next door to the synagogue. So Paul left the synagogue, but he didn't go very far. And then verse 8 says this, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So most of the people in the church at Corinth were Gentiles who had been converted out of the worst kind of paganism, In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2, Paul says to them, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. So he writes to the whole church as if they'd all been converted out of paganism because it was true of the vast majority of them. And this young church then, consisting mostly of new believers converted out of a grossly immoral heathen culture, the church was understandably beset with all kinds of problems. Because the paganism and debauchery of Corinth poisoned the culture all around them, and it even contaminated the church. So Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians is written to deal with several very specific problems that that struggling fellowship of young believers were grappling with. And the book reads like a a checklist of problems that he's addressing. And one of the prominent problems that they had there was a spirit of sectarianism. The church was divided into little factions. Sometime after Paul left Corinth, remember he was only there for 18 months, a year and a half, he moves on in his ministry because he's a missionary, not a a pastor. And he leaves that church in the hands of the most mature and spiritually stable men who were there. But after he left Corinth and moved on in his ministry, then the believers in Corinth began to fragment into these little groups and band together in what were like teams, competing factions that were based on their loyalties to the various teachers whose ministries had influenced the people who were in that church. And Paul confronts that tendency at the very start of his epistle. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So he names four of these teams and then asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he spends three chapters exposing the the folly of human wisdom and reminding them that the message of the cross is foolishness as far as wise men and philosophers are concerned. And he directs their hearts to the message of the cross, which he says is the wisdom and the power of God. And he closes chapter 3 with this summary, the end of chapter 3. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And his point is this. He's saying anyone who would have the sort of factious sectarian attitude that tries to pit Paul against Apollos or or sets Peter against the other apostles. Anybody that's doing that can be motivated only by one thing, and that's sinful pride. Pride in human wisdom, or pride in one's own spiritual pedigree, or simply a a proud, contentious attitude that despises harmony in the body of Christ and seeks to exalt self at the expense of others. Carnal pride, and Paul says so plainly, In chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a fleshly way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being fleshly? Now, think about this. If there had been any tendency in the Apostle Paul himself to cultivate that kind of carnal pride, he might have sided with the Paul party. You know, I'm think about it myself, If there's never been a faction that says, we follow Phil. (laughs) And I'm glad for that because I have this fear that if I knew that was going on, I'd kind of encourage it, or at least (laughs) quietly encourage it. Paul doesn't do that. You know, if he was carnal at all, he would have have argued, the followers of Paul, the ones who are saying, I am of Paul, they're the best Christians, but Paul doesn't say that. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the growth. So Paul specifically portrays himself the way he saw himself as nothing but a servant and a steward of what God had given him, and he urges the Corinthians, have that same perspective. Don't look at us as anything special. We're servants, servants for Christ's sake and servants to you. So that brings us to chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 now. He starts by saying once more that he's nothing but a steward of the gospel. In other words, his, his teaching is not Paul's own personal philosophy. He's not giving a message that is Uh, something he cooked up in his own mind, but it's a message that was committed to him by God to have a stewardship over, and the same thing was true of Apollos. And and they didn't have different messages. It was the same message. 
Same thing true of Peter. Same thing true of all of the apostles. Verse 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So there was no need to pit Paul against Peter. They were stewards accountable to the same master. And a steward is accountable only to his master. It doesn't matter how other men judge him. The only thing that counts is whether his master deems him faithful. Verse 3, but it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. So Paul was willing to stand or fall by how God judged him. And he urged the Corinthians to stop comparing Peter to Paul and um, Paul to Apollos, but leave all the judgments about men to God alone, and he would judge all things in his perfect time. Why? Because the sectarian spirit in Corinth was cultivating fleshly pride among the Corinth, and I think he starts with this for this very reason. This was the root of all that church's other difficulties. Even the charismatic tendencies they had just came right out of this, this spirit of pride where everybody was trying to prove himself smarter or better or more spiritual or more gifted than somebody else. And so they were having these gift contests to see who could be the most charismatic. And it it was cultivating and encouraging this fleshly pride. And so he says to them, verse 6, so that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, so that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. You see, they're Sectarianism was not only wrong to pit Paul against Apollos, this attitude was causing the Corinthians themselves to be puffed up and arrogant against one another. And it intrigues me that the the answer to that in Paul's mind is the principle of sola scriptura. Don't go beyond what's written. Don't think that God is giving you some kind of special revelation that makes you superior to everybody else. I always cringe when somebody is telling me, well, I feel like the Lord told me this. Really? How? Because if you didn't get it out of his word, I don't care what you think he told you. His word is the, is the only uh, standard we have to judge any truth claims. And if you go beyond that, you're going to struggle with carnal pride. So here in Corinth, you had this one group saying, well, we like Paul because of the depth of his teaching and the soundness of his doctrine. He is, he is the most well-trained because he was a Pharisee and grew up at the feet of Gamaliel. He's the smartest of all the apostles. We are the best Christians because we're the finest theologians. And then you had another group saying, well, we follow Apollos because he's the best preacher. He is the most eloquent orator. He's the finest motivator. He touches our hearts. So we're the best Christians And the proof is, we've accumulated the biggest following. And then there was a third group saying, well, we prefer Cephas or Peter because his teaching is so practical and so down to earth, and he's real, you know? Peter can fail like the rest of us, and we like his transparency and his genuineness, and we're the best Christians because our faith is more practical and less theoretical than all the rest of you. So these factions argue, and then you had, according to 1 Corinthians 1.12, this fourth faction, a group of the super spiritual people, who said, you know what, we, we reject all of those labels. We follow no human teacher, 
and no system. We are of Christ, Christ alone, and no creed. And in the name of love and unity, we reject and exclude all the rest of you. And you can see how that kind of sectarianism naturally fosters pride and arrogance and haughtiness and conceit of every kind. They were, in Paul's words, puffed up in favor of one against another. And that expression, puffed up, I love it. It, it appears seven times in the Bible, and six of them are in 1 Corinthians. Once also in Colossians 2.18. So it's always Paul who uses this. This is the first time it appears in Scripture. It's from the Greek word phusio, which means inflated, puffed up. It, it speaks of a scornful and unloving kind of arrogance. And in fact, look at how Paul uses it through this epistle. Down in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 4, he mentions those who were arrogant against him because they thought he wasn't going to return to them in person. He wasn't going to come back to Corinth. And he says their response to him on that was arrogant. It's the same Greek word there, puffed up. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, he mentions people who were arrogant, and he's describing their people who were proud of their extreme moral threshold. Like, they didn't get upset over immorality, and they were arrogant about that because they had tolerated the behavior of this man who was living with his father's wife and proud of the fact that they, they just weren't legalists. You know, we're not going to be legalists about it, and we're proud of that. And he calls them puffed up. They were bloated with arrogance rather than being humbled by the fact that someone in their midst was living in such gross immorality. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, so-called knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And in chapter 13, verse 4, that great chapter on love, he says that one of the characteristics of love is that it is not arrogant, or as the King James has it, not puffed up. Love is not puffed up. So to be puffed up is to have an inflated ego. Uh, this is a, just a different description of the same thing he's criticizing in them, fleshly pride. And he says, if you put everything together about how he uses this word puffed up, he's saying it's inherently unloving, and in fact, in a way, it's the very antithesis of love. And this sort of, you know, I'm better than you arrogance was a particular problem among the Corinthians. It's the kind of attitude that a corrupt culture would naturally tend to foster, and it was the very thing that had caused this church to divide into all of those competing factions. But Paul says that sort of inflated, arrogant ego has absolutely no place in the church. doesn't belong here. And in order to get them to face their ego-driven pretentiousness for what it really was, he poses a series of three questions to them, and that's our verse. All three questions in this one verse that we're looking at this morning, look at the verse again. You should be turned there by now. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And I think, frankly, that first question ought to be translated the way it is in the King James Version, where in the King James it says, who maketh thee to differ from one another? And, or the NIV, who makes you different from anybody else? That's what, that's what the question means. That's what Paul is asking them. Who do you think made you so different? You think you're better than everybody else. Whose fault is that? 
Or whose work is that? Now, I want to consider those three questions one at a time, and we'll try to draw from them the lessons that Paul intends for the Corinthians. So pay attention here. And he's answering all these factions, by the way. For those who take pride in their doctrine, there's a doctrinal lesson here. For those who are puffed up about the superiority of their more practical approach to the Christian life, there's some practical lessons here. And for those who are inclined to glory in men, there is a crucial lesson that overrides this whole verse, a lesson about the sovereignty and glory of God alone. So look at these questions one at a time. First, there is a question that exalts God's sovereignty. Then there's a question that extols divine grace. And then there's a question that exposes human pride. And we'll look at them in that order. If you want to take down that outline, I'll give it to you again as we go through it. So first is a question that exalts God's sovereignty. First question, for who makes you different from anyone else? Have you ever seriously contemplated that question? Who made you the way you are? You may not like the way you are, but who made you the way you are? Because the only answer is God, and he has a good purpose in it. If you're tempted to think of yourself as a self-made man or woman, do you, do you in your secret thoughts really wish to take credit for your virtues? Because let's face it, that is the natural tendency of the fallen human heart, and it's a tendency we all have. We all struggle with it. We pride ourselves in things that really shouldn't be a point of pride in the first place. You may be smarter or stronger or wealthier or more beautiful than most of us, but who gave you those advantages? And because a little reflection will reveal that if there is anything about you that makes you in any way superior to the rest of us, it isn't your doing in the first place. You don't get credit for it. It was God who gave you the skills and abilities that you are probably tempted the most to take pride in. And, and don't miss the point of the question Paul is asking. I, I read some commentaries on this, and I'm amazed that several commentators miss the whole point Paul is, is making here, miss it completely. I read several commentaries where it was suggested, these are all modern sort of newish commentaries too, you could predict this. They, they suggest that the correct answer to this question is really there's no important difference between one person and another. Like they try to shoehorn Paul into a 21st century notion of political correctness as if Paul is meaning to argue here that all people are fundamentally just the same in every meaningful sense anyway. Because that, after all, is the, one of the canon dogmas of American politics. Our, our Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And of course, the writers of the Declaration of Independence were, were talking about human rights and an equality of essence. We're all the same level of humanity. And in fact, if you understand the fall and the doctrine of original sin, you realize that's not really anything to boast about. We all have a sin at, at the heart of who we are. And in that sense, yes, we're equal, but I don't think even the founding fathers were teaching the sort of egalitarianism that dominates modern thought and you know, tries to bring everybody down to the lowest common denominator so that no matter who you are, no matter how excellent your accomplishments are, you get the same participation trophy as the loser next to you, you know? 
And in fact, if you will allow me to puncture one of the dogmas of modern political correctness, I want to point out, it is also a self-evident truth that we're not all absolutely equal in every sense. Some of you are smarter than me. Most of you are better looking than me. Uh, Many of you are wealthier than me, and some of you have attained positions of power and influence that give you a lot more clout than most of us have. We're not all created equal in the absolute sense, and Paul is not trying to deny those obvious differences. He, He doesn't expect his readers to reply to this question by denying that there's any real difference between one person and another. He's not claiming that everybody is exactly the same. He's not even pretending that there's no valid distinctions to be made between Paul and Apollos and Cephas. He's simply saying that whatever those distinctions are between people, when it comes to their virtues and their abilities, the things we would normally boast about, those things don't actually give any excuse for human pride because God is the one who makes us individual, different from other people. And think carefully about this for a moment. It's an undeniable fact that some people have advantages that the rest of us don't enjoy, and that's not a bad thing. They got that from God. You don't have to, you don't have to relinquish or be ashamed of whatever privilege you might have. Make the most of it. Use it to bless your neighbor. But you don't need to be ashamed of it in the realm of natural abilities even. It's obvious that some people are endowed with physical strength that most of us don't enjoy. Some people are smarter than others. Some are more privileged than others. Some are born with very fine physical attributes, you know, strong and healthy and vigorous and powerful. And others are born with disabilities and congenital weaknesses that plague them for all of their years. You all know Joe Joe Zelinas. He's been in a wheelchair all of his life. Character-wise, he's one of the strongest people I know, but physically, he's not as strong as most of us. And, and Allison Felix, who, who's been a member of this church, lives in my neighborhood. She is literally the fastest woman in the world. I wouldn't try to race her. <laughs> Some people are born with great beauty and striking looks and attractive physical features, but let's face it, some of us aren't that attractive. So who made the difference, you know? You you might say, well, I spend hours every day primping and adorning my hair and decorating my face in the mirror, but who gave you that fine head of hair? Who gave you your good looks? You may be proud of your strength and your athletic skills, but who made you that way in the first place? Who gave the runner swift legs and the weightlifter powerful arms? Scripture says it's God. You may say, well, I work out. I mean, my strength and my good looks are at least partly the result of my own hard work. Yeah, but who gave you the ability and the energy to work out? Who gave you your athletic skill and your health in the first place? Who determined that you would be whole and healthy while someone else would be confined to a hospital bed on a respirator? Strength and beauty, these things are gifts, not virtues. And there is no such thing as a self-made man. No matter who you are, no matter what you may have achieved, you didn't create yourself. And if you enjoy any advantages that you're tempted to take pride in, 
you need to recognize that God is the source of all of those advantages and even the things you've done to better yourself. God is the one who gives you the strength and the ability to do that. You didn't create yourself. God did. So what if you've taken the natural gifts you have and the talents to make use of them to become prosperous in a material sense? We can't even boast because of your wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18 expressly says, Remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth. If you enjoy a position of prestige and power, you need to remember that it's ultimately God who exalts one person and humbles another. Psalm 75, verses 4 through 7. To the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. And do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. God does this. And that, by the way, is the bottom line in every case. If you prosper, if you excel in whatever you do, you need to recognize that it's God who enables you to prosper. And in fact, in raising this fundamental question, Paul is confronting the Corinthians with the truth of divine sovereignty. He's giving them a dose of Calvinism here, that it is not of him that willeth or of him that runneth, but of God who shows mercy. That's Romans 9.16. God's grace and blessing depend not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know ye that the Lord is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Exodus 4.11. The Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? That's God himself speaking. And Psalm 139, 14, David's testimony. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, not self-made, but designed and created by God. Ephesians 2, 10. We are his workmanship. The potter has power over the clay. Why should the thing formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me this way? And by the same token, the thing formed can't take credit for what the potter has created. This truth is all through Scripture. You may remember that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, and the king of Tyre, and uh, Herod as well, three powerful rulers in Scripture, were all judged because they refused to give glory to God and tried to take credit for themselves because of the advantages and the prosperity that God had graciously given them. You could put Pharaoh in that same class. Nobody in all of history had more reason to think of himself as a self-made man than the Apostle Paul. After his conversion, in, uh, he says in Galatians 1, verse 16, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. He's saying he didn't learn what he knows about the gospel or his experience with Christ from any of the other apostles or from any human. When he was converted, he went into the desert alone, and he got his training for apostleship there by Christ. And he makes a point of informing us that even when he later visited Jerusalem, he didn't go and visit any of the apostles except Peter, and also James, the Lord's brother, who wasn't one of the twelve. But Paul is saying he didn't benefit from their help or discipleship. 
He never used them as stepping stones for prominence to himself. He's not saying that in order to boast. He's saying that to prove that because they preached the same message, and he didn't get it from them, they served the same Lord. But he never used the apostles as as an aid to gaining more uh, prominence or whatever. In Romans 15, verse 20, he says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And 2 Corinthians 11.23 points out, again, not in a boastful way, but this was a matter of indisputable fact that he had worked harder and suffered more than any other apostle. And so someone might say, well, Paul was a self-made man, but that's not what Paul was saying about himself. That's not the way he saw himself. And in fact, if we put this question directly to Paul, the question he asks here, and said, Paul, who makes you different from anybody else? Here's how he would answer. Here's how he did answer. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yeah, he would say, I worked harder than any of them, but he immediately adds, it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. There is no more humbling truth than the sovereignty of God, and a true understanding of divine sovereignty ought to provoke all of us to fall on our faces in gratitude to God for His grace to us. And again, this is a sad fact, but I have to admit that the people I meet who call themselves Calvinists are sometimes the most arrogant of all. They're exactly like the factious people that Paul was rebuking in Corinth. You know, we are of Calvin. We're of John Owen. We are of the Puritans. We are covenanters, as if they glory in men whom they've made into heroes, whom they've rightfully learned from. But, my dear Calvinist brother, who makes you different from that struggling Christian who hasn't yet come to grips with the sovereignty of God? Who gave you your theological understanding? Was, it, was Calvin crucified for you? Was Were you baptized in the name of Francis Turretin? Why do you have contempt for brethren who haven't reached the same exalted plane of understanding as you? Who enlightened you to the truth? Do you imagine that your grasp of doctrine is something meritorious that you deserve credit for? And if not, why do you boast as if you acquired understanding on your own or or through other men rather than from God? Let me also quickly say that a person who lacks humility, he's not really a mature Calvinist. He doesn't understand the first thing, really, about the sovereignty of God, no matter how much he talks about the subject. But that's the first question. Who makes you different from anybody else? And it's a question that exalts God's sovereignty, because the only righteous answer to that question is, it's God. It's He who made us, and not we ourselves. So here's the second question. Question number two, this is a question that extols divine grace. Paul goes on to ask, what do you have that you did not receive? Again, this is similar to the first question. What advantage do you have that is not a gift from God? What good thing could you ever point to in your own life that is not an expression of God's grace to you? And so let's let Scripture answer this question as well. John 3, 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. James 1, 17, 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Daniel 2, 21 and 22, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. In other words, everything you have that is worth having, and everything that you are that is not sinful, you owe to the bounty of divine grace. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And just as your natural gifts and talents are gifts from God, every grace and every spiritual gift that you enjoy as a Christian is also a gift from God. If you're a Christian, you need to thank God for it and give him the credit for that. Don't imagine that you came to Christ in the first place because you were more clever or more righteous than your next-door neighbor who rejects Christ. Your very first motion towards God was because he graciously drew you. You may not have even been conscious of that at the time, but before you ever sought him, he was seeking you. John 6, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. He told the apostles in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Faith itself is a gift of God. Romans 12, verse 3, Paul writes, I say to everyone among you, and here, here he is echoing what he's saying to the Corinthians, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to th- think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. You get that? Whatever faith you have, God gave you that. That's a gift from him. You can't take pride in your salvation. Not only your faith, but also your repentance is a gracious gift given to you by God. And I don't have time to go into all the verses, but if you want to look it up, Acts eleven eighteen, Acts 5, 31, 2 Timothy 2, 25, all of those texts say repentance is God's gift to us. And furthermore, If you have a new heart and a new spirit and new righteous desires, it's not because you reformed yourself. It's because God gave you a new heart. He removed the stony heart and gave you a heart of flesh, according to Ezekiel 36, 26. So that salvation, all of it, your your redemption from sin, every single facet of it is God's work in you. It is not something you accomplished by an act of your own free will. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So even the good works you do as a Christian are sovereignly and graciously things that were prepared for you by God. And he is the one who ordained that you should walk in them. So, what's the question here? What do you have that you didn't receive? And the clear biblical answer is nothing. Nothing good ever comes to you except as a gracious gift from a kind and merciful God who is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And that ought to provoke gratitude and humility in us rather than pride. 
And that brings us then to the third and the last of these three questions in this verse. First was a question that exalts God's sovereignty. Then there was a question that extols divine grace. And finally, here's a question that exposes human pride. And look at the final question in the trilogy that makes up our verse. If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, if it's a gift to you from God, why do you boast as if it's something you get credit for? If every advantage you enjoy, every virtue you possess, came to you as a gracious gift from the hand of a loving God, why would you ever even want to boast about it as if you deserve the credit for it? You should give glory to God for that. And Scripture's full of admonitions about that. Paul's point is this. Pride results from a serious corruption of the truth. Pride is the fruit of bad doctrine. You can give lip service to the sovereignty of God and the the centrality of divine grace, but if you are proud and arrogant, your life belies your theology. The testimony of your behavior is undermining your own statement of faith. To boast about what you've received by God's grace is to rob him of glory. To take credit for what you have graciously received is to exalt yourself above God. And wasn't that the cause of Satan's fall in the first place? He was filled with pride because of how God made him. The Lord speaks through the prophet, I believe, to Satan here in Ezekiel 28, 17, when he says, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. It's the fall of Satan, I think, that that describes. And and the whole universe, if you think about it, that means the entire universe of evil stems from that kind of pride. Pride in how God made you. Pride is evasive, and it's often subtle, and and true humility is not as easy to cultivate as you might think, because it's too easy to be proud of not being proud. And and no one is more arrogant than the person who is proud of his own humility, you know? Of course, we would never boast. But the minute you make that claim, you're guilty of boasting. Whenever I hear someone, you know, some super spiritual person going on and on about his own unworthiness, I suspect that even that kind of talk is shot through with a kind of sinful self-confidence, or at least a desire to appear holy, which is also rooted in pride. Spurgeon said it like this, it's easy to be proud while sneering at pride and to glorify self while denouncing self-exaltation. Pride is a subtle, serpent-like vice, and it will insinuate itself into the most secret chamber and hide in the most unlikely places. It will speak like an angel of light and cringe and fawn and display a mock modesty which might almost deceive even the very elect. It will blush and be diffident and hesitating, while all the while Lucifer himself is not more puffed up. That's Spurgeon. But listen, true Christian modesty is not that sort of artificial self-abasement, you know? You you can't attain genuine humility by self-flagellation or by a phony belittlement of your gifts and your abilities. I think I've told this story before, but my best friend for more than 50 years is Steve Kreloff, and he, he 
years ago told me the story of a, a godly preacher who was speaking at a, a Bible college, and uh, this student who wanted to impress the preacher with how humble he was said, uh, Dr. So-and-so, please pray for me that I will be nothing. And the preacher said, you are nothing. Take it by faith. <laughs> Kriloff says that to me all the time. You're nothing. Just take it by faith. True humility is not a pretense. We're, we're not supposed to pretend that we are empty and devoid of anything good, but rather authentic humility is the knowledge that whatever there may be that's good or spiritually useful in us, it's given to us by the hand of a merciful God, and therefore we are merely stewards of that gift, debtors to divine grace, and we should glory in nothing on our own because we don't have anything good on our own. Everything good about us is a gift of God's grace and therefore a reason to praise Him. Not a reason to go around flagellating ourselves or talking about how unworthy we are, but give the glory where it belongs to God. The Apostle Paul said that very thing in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, verses 29 through 31. He said, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the right lesson. Don't pretend that you're more humble than you really are, but if you feel like something to boast about, give the glory to God. That's the right way to boast. Now, before we close, let me draw a couple of doctrinal and practical lessons from this text. First of all, a point of doctrine. I believe you can, if you answer these three questions honestly and just let the truth that is suggested by these questions inform your theology, you're going to be a Calvinist. You can't be an Arminian and answer these questions correctly, right? The logical and legitimate conclusion of these questions should drive us to cause us to embrace the doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty. If you're a believer, ask yourself, how did you become a Christian? How did you come to be a Christian? Was it ultimately because of something you did? Because of a choice you made? Did it all hinge on you, or, or was it solely the work of God in your heart? And I hope you know that it was God's work in your heart, even if you weren't aware of it at the time. It was God's work in your heart, not something special about you, that drew you to Christ. In fact, in his commentary on this verse, John Gill quotes an Arminian who, he says, wrote, in answer to this text, and I don't know if John Gill's making this up or not, but this is kind of the logical conclusion of Arminian theology. He says, he read from an Arminian who answered this text with this quote, I make myself to differ, since I could resist God, and and his divine predestination, but I have not resisted, so why may I not glory of it in, as it were my own? Now, obviously, that's not the question the Apostle Paul is expecting, but that is the answer that's more or less suggested by any theology that puts so much stress on human free will and the human choice. It's true of Pelagianism and open theism and every other kind of free will theology as well, it's bad doctrine because it gives sinners grounds for boasting. And Paul says, that's the very thing the truth rules out. Here's a, a second doctrinal lesson. While we emphasize the truth that's 
suggested by these questions, that God is sovereign, that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Everything good is his doing, and everything that, is, that happens that's glorious is to the praise of the glory of his grace. Do not imagine that the converse is true. The biblical doctrine of divine sovereignty does not suggest that God is the author or the efficient cause of evil that men do. Nor does it mean that God is to blame when people pursue the path of evil. James 1, verses 13 and 14, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's where free will leads you to evil. So you you can't flip it on its head and use God's sovereignty to blame him for human wickedness. All of that stems from the fleshly lusts of the human heart, Scripture says. Here's a simple principle. Whatever is good in you, God deserves full credit for. But whenever some corruption or sinful desire or evil intention arises in you, you have to take full responsibility for that. You get the blame for everything bad. God gets the credit for everything good. Does that seem unfair to you? If so, it's only because you don't really understand the true depth of your own depravity. Don't use the doctrine of God's sovereignty, like some people do, to make God the author or the efficient cause of evil, or to use him as an excuse when you sin. That's a corruption of biblical truth. Here's a third doctrinal lesson, and this is closely related to the second one. Far from diminishing or eliminating human responsibility, the truth that underlies this text, the the truth that this text is built on, magnifies human responsibility. God has distinguished you from others by gracious gifts that he has given you. But scripture says, Luke 12, 48, everyone to whom much was given of him will much be required. And to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. The fact that God graciously makes us who we are and gives us advantages means we're responsible to serve him with those things. Your responsibility is greater, not less, because of the sovereign work of God in your life. And if you see God's sovereignty as something that contradicts human responsibility or diminishes human responsibility, then you have a warped and imbalanced view of the sovereignty of God. So those are some doctrinal lessons and a couple of practical lessons. First, the truth of this text ought to move us to gratitude. If, if every good thing we possess is a gift from God, then we are profoundly indebted to God's grace, and that realization ought to make us perpetually thankful. Instead of complaining and murmuring about the trials and the hardships we endure, we ought to focus on the many undeserved blessings that we enjoy every day. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. And Lamentations 3, verses 22 and 23 says this, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We sing that all the time. Have you ever thought about it? What it's saying is, if it were not for the bounty of divine grace that all of us enjoy... Every one of us would have and should have been damned and destroyed long ago because of our sin. So remember that and give thanks even in the midst of your trials. 
The truth of this text ought to also move us to tenderness in our ministry to others. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? In other words, be patient with that brother or sister who is slow to learn or slow to perceive. Don't give up easily on the the one who's still a prisoner to sin even. Remember that the grace of God is the only reason that you yourself are not in such a condition. I used to hear that lesson from my mom all the time. She wasn't a doctor of divinity. In fact, I would say she was not a theological expert, but she got this. She had a decent grasp of practical religion. And from my earliest years, I can, I can remember her teaching me to look with compassion on people who are less fortunate than me, including people who have wrecked their own lives with sin. And whenever, you know, there'd be a story on the news or on television about someone who, who suffered the miseries of the consequences of his own sin or, or who reaped the fruit of a life of crime or, or something like that, my mom would never gloat. She would never want me to rejoice that this criminal got served a massive helping of justice. She would always say with a mixture of sadness and gratitude, there but for the grace of God go I. And that is the very truth of our text. And it it is a profound theological and practical point. And finally, here's the sum of all the practical lessons of this text. Learn humility. Shun vanity. Develop a holy hatred for arrogance and pride. And think of what you would be without God's grace. And that 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 should cure us from boasting about our own accomplishments. Realize that every good thing we have comes from God and glorify the giver, not the gifts, and certainly not the recipient of the gifts, your own self, but glorify God. James 4 verse 6 says, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Because everything comes to us as a gift of grace, that's why God hates pride and gives grace, more grace to the humble. And if we understood the truth of God's sovereign grace, that ought to make us humble and help us to realize that we are utterly dependent on his grace for every good thing we need. And that is a, that is a need we have every single moment of every minute of our lives. It would be foolish of me to assume that everybody here this morning is a believer. And I want to say, If you're here this morning without Christ, these truths have a particular application to you as well, because they show you, I hope, that your only hope is divine grace, because you are a fallen sinner with no potential to redeem yourself or reform yourself. Ultimately, there's nothing good in you, but God has shown grace to you already, and I know that simply because he has enabled you to hear the truth of his word, and now he calls you to repent of your sin and receive Christ as Savior. And he makes this gracious promise in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You can't redeem yourself, but God will graciously redeem you if you set your faith in Christ, if you receive him as your Lord and Savior, and if you trust in him alone. So I implore you in Christ's stead this morning, Be reconciled to God. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for this truth. Though it humbles us, it's, it's a humbling that we confess we desperately need. We pray, Lord, that you would make us constantly aware of our utter dependence on your grace. Your word says you give more grace and you give grace to the humble. So may we be humble that we may receive more and more of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson, all rights reserved.